Kaiser Cast episode 24. Our special guest today is Al Lundy. Really looking forward to talking to him. Uh, he is a truck driver uh, that we deal with a lot, and he's just fantastic to work with and actually is willing to pull into our driveway at Kaiser, which is unfortunately hard to come by, so it's it's always a relief um, when he's there, and he's just really fun uh, to talk to and, and get along with, so it, it's a it's actually a good interaction with a truck driver versus um, tension and and yelling that usually happens with all the other loads, unfortunately. So looking forward to talking to him in a little bit different setting because I'm always so focused at work that I don't really talk much. We're just trying to get everything in and out and on the way. Uh, but uh, Chloe's with me here for open segment. She's back um, in her second home this week <laughs> back in Colorado. <laughs> My second home. Um, My winter home. So I was lonely in my big office because she usually shares that when she's in Lincoln, but um, she didn't have to listen to me eating my pretzels, so she was probably happy. I was just about to say that it must be a relief not to have someone else chewing in your office. I don't know. Like, chewing does bother me sometimes, but I don't know. I'm usually focused enough that it always really bothered me when I shared an office with my mom. Okay. But I don't know. You must have not been. You didn't really have that much crunchy stuff, I don't think. So. Oh, I definitely had crunchy stuff. I think I would just try to eat it when you weren't there. Probably. For the most part. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I'll keep it up. So, what did you fix this week? The auger in the blast room has just been making a weird noise for a while, kind of intermittently. Um. And I've been knowing that I've needed to get down in there and look at it for a couple months, really. Um, and I finally got down in there and opened it all up, which takes a little while. Uh, but it w luckily, it was just a part that kind of had gotten loose. And so since it had been loose for so long, it was kind of wearing a bolt out. And so there was just like a, a little bracket that was just kind of clanging around. It wasn't really, nothing was really super damaged. Uh, so I just had to like replace a bolt and get it tight and put it right back together. That's probably the easiest fix I've done on the, the auger before. And that's like runs underneath the floor in the blast room. And that's where when we get done with the set, we push all the blast media down into that pit, which there's an auger in it. And then that moves the, the grip back to the pot so we can keep using it. Um, so that's why it's hard to get to because it's down in the floor. You got to move the grates and then pull out all the shielding so you can actually get down to the auger itself. And then now, um, whenever I'm working around an auger, I always think about what happened to my uncle, uh, my famous uncle, the one who got his leg caught in the right. in an auger when he was you know moving grain from a bend or whatever or, or however whatever was happening there when he was moving grain around. Your so, family has some auger trauma in its past. Right, yeah. And this one moves way slower, and obviously it's off and, and when I'm down in there. But, like, to make sure that it works, you kind of have to, like, turn it on and look down in at it. But I don't I'm all Now I'm like, make sure you don't fall in there. So. I hadn't even thought of that, but, yeah, you must think of that every time you're near that thing. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, so I saw some pictures recently. It looks like we've got a big project going on for the yellow garage in Lincoln. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, there's another parking uh, garage going up in downtown Lincoln, kind of around the Haymarket area. They're calling that one Deck 4, so I think it'll probably have the numbers 4s all over it. There's 1, 2, and 3 down there already. And uh, those are, it's like aluminum signage that kind of goes up on the sides. So to signify that it's one of the different garages and they're all different colors down there. And we blasted and painted the original ones, um, in the past, which has been several years ago. It was even before I was working full time at Kaiser. And those ones are like everybody that's been downtown knows if they paid attention, they're red, blue, and green and still are in really, really good shape and have held color and gloss really well. So, uh, when this, when the fourth parking garage was going up and out for bid, we were asked to bid the signs for this one. It's a, a bright kind of safety yellow, um, which presents some challenges because bright yellows usually are hard to don't cover as well. Um, so on the blasting and coating side, we're blasting and in, in, um, liquid coating actually those signs, and then on our in our painting division, like the commercial residential painting division, they're actually will be on site um, painting the inside of the parking garage. Um, you know, like oh, I the, didn't know that. the pillars and stuff and, uh, and like the, probably the stairwells and things like that. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. Did KPI do the insides of the other ones as well? I don't remember, but probably, maybe not all of them, but some of them. So why are these going liquid as opposed to powder? Um, I asked that question too. Uh, it's It was kind of loosely specced to be liquid. And um, I guess we probably could have decided ourselves to do it in powder. Um, however, like we, kn we knew the system that was used before worked. And my dad was really confident in that system. And it's... You know, it's obvious that it worked well because the signs are still up from the red, green, and blue, and nothing's peeling and flaking off. It's not like the red faded to pink or something. You know, like, I'm sure it's faded a little because that's just what happens to color over time when it's in the sun, but it's not, like, noticeable right now to the just by walking by it. If you held a color standard to it, maybe it would be noticeable. But so based on the fact that what was done 10 to 15 years ago is still looking really good. We kind of made the decision like we probably should just, you know, use the same system we did before. It's going to be a different color, but go with that same system because if it's not broke, don't fix it basically. Um, but I did, you know, really heavily consider doing powder. But if you're doing a really bright color like that on an architectural substrate where it's going to be, it's really visual and really important to hold up for a long time. Um, it probably would have taken uh, a step up from even a super durable powder because that's usually like a five-year color and gloss. And um, we probably would have needed 10 or 15 years. So it would have drove us into a really custom powder, and which was is somewhat difficult to get all the time. But then right now with, with the supplies the way they are, probably even more difficult and expensive. So that kind of steered me away from powder. It it's, was a lot of square footage, and we didn't necessarily have the manpower to be liquid coating it. Um, 
but we we made it work because it was a two coat um or three coat system actually two different paints a primer and a top coat but that yellow just doesn't cover good enough so to make it good and vibrant you have to do two coats of the yellow and like we've talked about in the past with liquid paint it just um you know you have to wait for dry times and things so we can't process it through the shop as fast and that just really drives me nuts because i'm so used to how fast we can push stuff through the shop and powder for example we could have from hang to pack the entire project in powder we probably could have pushed it through in two days probably maybe mm -hmm. three if from the first part hung to the last part down but in terms of liquid painting at all, I mean, we were talking like two weeks. Okay. And it, was, it wasn't because we we're working on it for two weeks straight, but the, this, there's dry times in between, you know? So there's, there's some time where you can't really work on it and you got to go do something else. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. And so now, this was a... Sorry, go ahead. And now um, they... They had it all picked up. We were done. I was happy. Like, we got that out of the way. And we don't have to worry about that now. Because it was a big hurdle. It was just a lot of stuff to do. And and we've been really busy and haven't been doing very much liquid coating work. Because uh, we don't have the time or personnel. And then I uh, got a call last week that um, they were going to put it up. And they got to lift it up. These are big pieces. So I got to lift them up with a crane and things. And uh, some of the welts were weren't penetrated enough so they started popping and so um some of the panels started getting loose on there so there's a couple pieces that have to get re-welded and then come back to us now we have to make them look good again so there's kind of a decision on, on my part of like okay do we want to just try to like band-aid it and make it look as good as we can without totally redoing it or you know do we want to do it just start 100% over, make sure it's done right. And that's kind of the way I'm leaning right now, just because we really don't want to accidentally run into some adhesion issues with it being finished coated. It's been now probably three weeks ago. And now we're going to come back and just like, we just sand it and try to coat over it again. We may have some uh, inner laminar adhesion problems between the coats, and that would be not good if we got it all done and they went to put it up and it's up there for a week and then it starts peeling. So we're leaning towards this probably. How many? Go ahead. How many parts were affected? We only have two back right now. So hopefully it's just those two, but they're 26 foot long. So it's, they're big parts. Wow. So is Jess doing all that on his own or is Chauncey over there helping? Uh, Chauncey and Stan were the, one's doing that nice yeah it's a big project i'm looking forward to featuring it on social um and talking about it a little bit i had definitely seen the other colors i didn't realize how old they were um and you're right they still look brand new yeah i would say they're it's definitely because i started in 2015 it's definitely like 2012 2013 or 2014 so we're talking eight to ten years ago now that's impressive. Which probably makes sense. I feel like those went up the time the Pinnacle Bank Arena was going up. And that's probably about right. Yeah. So speaking of social, 
we have any tip of the week this week? Yeah, um, I think that one of the reasons people get overwhelmed with trying to actually post on social every day is because they think that they have to have fresh pictures, fresh video, fresh everything every day, and I don't think that's true. Um, so my tip of the day is to stretch your content. If you have one, you know, let's say three-minute video, um, post that, and that's great, and then edit it down into shorter sound bites, and then post those for a week and then pull stills from it, and then post those for a week. Like, you can stretch your content. It doesn't have to be something new every time. Um, and I think the more that we do that at Kaiser, the less stress any of us feels about having to constantly produce. Um, because we have a lot of pictures. We have a lot of materials, and it's still relevant, and it's still interesting, and we can use them in different ways. So. Yeah, I agree with that. Because it gets hard to create fresh content. But then at the same time, if you're the person like me that's kind of like the center of where content comes from don't make it as hard on your content creators as i do and not record fresh stuff for like months on end because that's just but it hasn't been hard is the thing because you have done a lot like we have a huge bank from which to pull and so we never feel strapped really well, like that's good new content is always nice like don't get me wrong but <laughs> i guess i'm just gonna take the next year off then <laughs> I'll send Abby out with her camera. Okay. All right, on Kazercast episode 24 today, we have a guest that I've been really really looking forward to all year. Um his name is Al Lundy and we know him as one of or the truck driver from Creek Carrier um that delivers parts regularly to Kazer and picks them up and he's probably or he is the best truck driver that I've ever seen and uh, really fun um, and easy to get along with. So we always enjoy having him there. Um, most truck drivers are usually grumpy and he never is. So that's, that's always fun. So Al, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? We haven't seen you in a while, so I'm excited to talk to you. Jace, I'm doing real well. Thank you for the opportunity and, and what a, what a great surprise, you know, to, uh, be part of one of your podcasts and then we have chloe here and you guys have briefly kind of met in person when she was in lincoln but probably don't quite remember i'm um, also very excited about this episode i feel like we've been talking about this for months now and so i'm glad you're here al well thank you uh, i'm glad to be part of uh the uh kaiser family so I'd love to just start off by talking big picture. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your driving career, when and how you started, who you've driven for, um, and then what kind of truck you're in? Well, uh, it all started back in uh, April of uh, 76. It was the first time I ever held the wheel of a truck. And uh, I got started because I grew up around trucks. My grandfather drove, my dad drove, he was an owner operator. And uh, when I turned 21, he says, kid, you know, it's time for you to get serious here and learn a profession. And uh, he was very serious. He took it as a profession and uh, he wanted, uh, wanted me to do the same thing. So uh, it was my, my family, my, my father that decided to uh, uh, put me in, a, in his truck and off we went. So how old were you at that time? I had just turned 21, and uh, that was back in 76. So I'm 
that was uh I don't know what is that forty eight years ago or so back then when... did because like now you have to have a CDL was that a thing back then or was the regulations different? Actually, it was a lot easier. You know, he owned the truck, he made the payments, he insured the freight. You know, he insured his truck, and uh, so you know all he had to do was tell the carrier, "Hey, I'm putting my son on the truck. Going to teach him to drive." They said okay. And that's how it started. Tell us about the one of the first loads that you took. Like I, I think you told me you went to the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, that's what we did mostly. Um, we lived in York, Nebraska at the time, and they had sunflower carriers and a sunflower pack, which was a beef packing place. And they uh, primarily made uh, kosher beef. So everything went out to the East Coast. To Brooklyn is where I went to pretty much all of the time. And, uh, you know, we dealt with rabbis and, uh, and uh, you know, kosher is a whole different animal than just regular beef. It, it would be blessed when uh, you ended up leaving. And uh, if uh, you did not deliver it within 72 hours, apparently the blessing wears off and nobody wants the meat. So there's a demand and a time schedule just in that particular kind of load that you wouldn't have with another. I mean, there's no excuse, wow. you know, That's interesting. So, so at times, you know, it, it can be a very difficult job. And, and this is swinging me. This is not box me. This is, this is halves of uh, beef hanging from the ceiling. And so this is a very top heavy load. And, uh, and I cannot stress you how important it is to handle with care. Did you ever not make it within the 72 hours? We ended up getting snowed in in uh, Ohio at one point, and uh, we had to call in a rabbi, and uh, they broke the seal. Uh, he took a garden hose and sprayed the back meat and said his blessing, resealed it, and we were good. So, yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> if you can imagine that, yeah. But, but yeah, we actually did at one time. You know, we were snowed in about four days there, so wasn't anything we could do. You must have seen all kinds of weather driving through the East Coast. It gets really snowy up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, nothing compared to, to the mountains. The mountains is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it gets a lot of snow up in the higher elevation. So is it your dad who taught you how to drive? Yeah, yeah. Actually, from that point, I'd never been behind the, a truck, the wheel of a truck in my life. Never. Just, I've been around him. I never drove one until we hooked up to that first load going to Brooklyn. And he says, all right, get behind the wheel. Let's go east. And that's how it all started for me. So how long were you driving for Sunflower? Um, I, uh, I rode with my dad for a year. And, uh, you know, he was a great, you know, he'd been doing this. I've never known a better driver. And him. I've seen him put it in spots. I've seen him handle everything. And uh, not only did he teach me how to drive, but he taught me work ethic. He taught me how to treat people and how to be professional in, in, the, uh, in the job that we were doing. He always made sure you must be clean. You must be, you know, um, good to your customer. They will remember you 
if you come back. And so he always stressed, you know, to be professional in every way, how you dress, how you speak, how you handle yourself. And But uh, he always made it a point, you got to be able to do what they ask you to do and uh, don't complain about it. So right. he was a great teacher. How old was he when he retired? Uh, he was in his 60s. Um, and I think the only reason he retired is, uh, you know, he uh, he injured himself as well. He took a fall and, and uh, hurt his feet. And uh, so he retired. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he, he did it all his life. I remember as a kid when I was like nine or 10 years old, he would, he hauled cattle when I was young. And I've never done that, but he'd take me with him and he'd have me stand by the end of the trailer with a, with a strap or a buzzer and say, don't let them slow down, get them running right through there. One of my highlights as a child to, to remember those days, you know, helping him unload, you know, hogs or cattle. So from the beginning, did you always think that that's what you wanted to do was drive trucks? I always thought that was something I never wanted to do. <laughs> but, but as it turned out, uh, that's exactly what I guess I was made to do. What did you want to do instead at the time? You know, uh, honestly, I wanted to, uh, as I was going through school, I wanted to be like a, a paramedic or something like that. But uh, sadly, around my sophomore year and uh, junior year of high school, I kind of lost the drive for school. And uh, I'm sad to say that I did not focus on school uh, from beginning to end as I should have. And so my options kind of, you know, changed because sure. of my time as a teenager. Yeah, that makes sense. So obviously you spent a good deal of time on the East Coast. What other territories have you covered? Is there any part of the country you haven't been to? Oh, uh, no, I've been to every major city and hit pretty much every major interstate and highway in the country. And who do you drive for now? I've been with Creek Carrier now about 40 years. 40 Jeez. years? Yeah, yeah. That's you awesome. You must like it there. Well, you know, uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, when I started with them uh, around 76, 77, uh, they were just a little family. You know, it was a, a family operation. It was still a big operation, but it was nothing like it is now. And, uh, you know, we were, we were like family. Everybody knew everybody. And, and uh, it was really a, a close, close environment. I really, really enjoyed from the beginning right on up till now. And, you know, we've, uh, we've grown as, uh, you know, an employee, not just employee and employer, but we've just grown over the years to, uh, it just seems like, where would I go? Where could, uh, I'm secure where I'm at. And there's really, nobody's offered me anything any better. So uh, I feel like I've made good choices by staying. That's great. So explain to me how this works. So Creek Carrier is the freight company. Do they have contracts with certain businesses where you're the sole provider of trucking services? Or like who who's bringing in business and how does that work? And what businesses are you working with and what industries are you serving? 
Well, you know, there was a period of time where uh, I was part of the contract with the truck. And this was back when uh, there was Novartis. Do you remember Novartis? Yes. Yep. Yeah, it was yeah. Novartis at the time. Now it's, I believe, Smith Glasgow Klein. But it was out there. And I was out there for 10 years providing service for them. Uh, I was there. I was not their employee, but I was, as you mentioned, you know, just contracting with one particular company and I was doing everything that they needed. But uh, they've got, oh my gosh, if there's a, a business that needs something done as far as transportation goes, something carried from point A to point B, creek carriers involved in it in one form or another. Okay, so does your territory kind of stay the same, or does it vary according to what you're driving? Well, in the beginning, I used to run over the road. So I ran anywhere, anytime. And uh, and uh, that's what I did. You know, I covered all 48 states. I went anywhere, whatever they had, didn't matter the product or the destination, I would take it. And uh, But now I'm running locally. I've got this little day cab. There's no bunk on the back. There's no sleeping overnight. It's just, you know, I'm just like a regular employee. I do my eight hours a day. They prefer I don't do any more. Just do my 40 and uh, be home every night. So, you know, I put in my time. I believe I've got enough gray hair on my chin where I was offered this position. And so I've had it now for, I don't know, five, six, seven years I've been doing this locally. So what? How many years of your life did you spend just driving all across the country? Oh, uh, I'd say 25. I don't know. I don't know. From April of 76 until now, I had about a 10, 16 years that were not over the road. But, okay. but the rest were all over the road. So I don't know. What would that be? About 30 years. Do you miss, do you miss being over the road? You know, sometimes I've actually thought about saying, hey, why don't you give me a truck? Let me run out on the road for a month, get it out of my system, and, uh, you know, I'll come back and do this. But uh, I don't know if they'd fly with that or not. But I have at times thought, man, I'd you like to go to L.A. or, you know, or out to Seattle or I'd like to, you know. And that was it was a great benefit when you went over the road. You could see family that you never got to see on a regular basis. With my brother living in California, I've got relatives in Indiana. You know, it, it was just kind of a bonus, you so, know, when you got to see family. When you're going over the road, just to, like, give everybody an idea, if you, like, so you're starting in Nebraska and you got to go to the East Coast, that takes, like, obviously there's a certain amount of driving hours if you go straight through, but I assume you have to do some stops and stuff. So what, like, what would your week look like? Like, if on a Monday you were in Nebraska and you had to take off and go to the East Coast, is that, are you back to Nebraska, in, like, on Friday? Or Yeah, I, or? Could, I could be back by the weekend if it was, like, no mess around, just unload, reload, and come back. Yeah, you can do that. Or are there other times where you would take off from Nebraska and you'd be just kind of going all over the place and you wouldn't get back to Nebraska for three weeks or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, in fact, I don't know what the policy is now, but I think Cree wants you out any, depending on how you're hired and what the agreement is with uh, uh, their employee as far as 
how long they want to be out. Mm -hmm. I think okay. uh, anywhere from uh, two weeks to 45 days. Wow. Uh, you're usually out. Yeah. If you're over the road. And so then you're, are you just sleeping in your truck and stuff or do you get hotels or how does that work? No, no, no. You sleep in your truck unless you want to buy your own motel. Okay. Unless you break down, you know, if you break down, uh, Crete takes care of you. They'll put you in a motel. Uh, they'll make sure that you're fed and, uh, you know, they just, they take care of you. So how often does, did breakdowns happen then? For me, pretty much rarely, you know, almost hardly ever, especially to the point where you have to get a room. Okay. Uh, that and is that, a, is that a reflection on that, that you were taking care of your truck and making sure maintenance was being done and stuff like that? Because I, I assume if you're out on the road that much, like it's got to be up to you to be looking after it, right? Of course, you know, but, you know, uh, tip of the hat to Creek Carrier and their safety and, and uh, their maintenance program, you know, they, whenever it comes in, it needs anything, they take care of it. And uh, it, it really is, for me, over the years, it's been very rare that I broke down, cost me time. I had an engine go out one time um, uh, over uh, going into California, and I was down for four days waiting for another engine. But uh, uh, that was really the, the longest one that I can recall. I just find that so, so does it get... Does it get lonely being gone for a month at a time like that and living and working and sleeping in your truck? Or does it become addictive where you miss it when you're not on the road? I never stayed out a month. By then, I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be speaking very uh, urgently to my dispatch. You know, there, I, I was never sure. one. Two weeks was basically my limit, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got things to do, you know. Of course, you know. You've got your yard to mow. You've got bills to take care of. You've just got things you've got to be back for. And uh, and besides, you know, being away from uh, uh, the family for for a month at a time, it, it takes a lot. This over the road is not for everybody, you know, and uh, whoever thinks they can just get into this and, and uh, just be gone. And it, it is a... It's not an easy job. It's, someone told me once, they said, Al, uh, man, all you do is look out a window for a living. How tough is that? I said, well, you know, it's not quite as easy as that. You know, you start going down a 10% grade with 80,000 pounds, and it's got a solid snowpack under you. Uh, you've got uh, equipment flying all over the road in front of you. It, 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 you've got crazy people making moves that you just still wonder years later why they did what they did. And so, you know, it's a high pressure job and being gone, you know, it just adds to it. You need to get home. You need to find time with your family. And that is probably one of the biggest reasons. Number one, for a driver not to stay with a company, I believe, would be not being able to get their pay. Number two is not being able to get home. And number three, sure. not being respected for the work that you do. Those are probably the, the reasons a, you know, an, a driver would leave a company. Right. So what do you do to pass the time and stay awake all of those hours? Because you really have to be focused. Like you can't be zoning out. Um, I mean, are you listening to music? Are you listening to books on tape? What are you doing? 
Yeah, exactly. I did a lot of that. You know, I I would listen to books on tape and and music and uh, you know uh, just whatever. You know, you've still got to stop occasionally and and uh, stretch your legs and. But uh, yeah, yeah, you just keep your mind active, and uh, you know the miles do go. I was I was just easily uh, over the years. It was no big thing for me to go you know, five hour stretches without stopping. It was not a, not a problem. It was just part of the, part of the job. So are there some over the road drivers that like have someone that rides with them that also drives and they trade off? Oh yeah. 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 Two man or two person where, uh, if you're with a good company, that truck nearly never stops. You know, you're, you've got these loads where, you know, you just swap trucks, or excuse me, swap drivers, and uh, you just stop for your break, stop for your meal, stop to clean up, and other than that, the truck is rolling. And uh, but you've got two wages to take care of, so you really need to get twice as many miles to make up for it. That makes sense. One thing that always so when when we used to race a lot and we had a motorhome and trailer. Um, if we would ever blow a tire on the trailer, that was always not good because then t- typically the trailer would be hopping all over the place and be getting like sideways almost on the interstate. Um, did you ever have anything like that? Or when it's a more like a truck and a 53-foot trailer and you got dual tires and stuff, does that is that not much of an issue if a tire it's blows? Really, it's really not an issue on your trailer. Okay. Uh, the one thing that we always worry about as a driver to blow out a steering tire okay because a steering tire they're they're packing around five or six thousand pounds on each tire and uh, it's a pretty good drop when that axle goes directly to the concrete mm-hmm. you know going down the road so uh, you know you better have a good grip on on that steering wheel and uh you know but that's as far as tires blowing out that's the one that uh, that would get your attention more than any so over the years, um, as you were doing over the road, did like speed limits and how traffic flow changed, like as cities grew and things, did it make it more difficult to be going over the road or, or not really? I, I, I guess as the years went by, all I can say is the roads got better. So, you know, all in all, you know, I remember when I used to run the West Coast, in the very beginning, uh, we ran parts of uh, uh, Highway 66 that were still two-lane. And uh, some of it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, complicated. You'd have uh, scales in, in tough spots to get in and out of. and and uh, but, but those roads are gone. Those are just, we're Interstate 80 all the way now. But uh, at the time when I first began, you know, there were parts of Arizona and and a certain areas of Highway 66 we had to still run. So as years go by, I remember Pennsylvania was the worst road in the country in the very beginning of my career. I mean, you just had to strap yourself in, put on a helmet, and just, <laughs> you know, just try and hope you get a cross Pennsylvania without breaking something. It was, 
I can't even begin to tell you how bad those roads were out there. And, uh, but, but they've gotten a lot better. So how about the, the truck itself, um, as technology has advanced, do, do they drive better or different? Well, you know, I was lucky. I, when I had started driving, my dad had a brand new 1976 Peterbilt cab over and it had a 350 Cummins with a 13 speed in it. And it was nice. It had air ride. So, you know, starting off, I was always in pretty good equipment. And uh, Crete's always got new equipment. They don't let their equipment get much more than three or four years old, and they replace it. So the equipment is good. I'm just not big on the technology. I mean, I think they're just overdoing it with, you know, the technology, you know. And uh, uh, I I just don't care for the uh, extreme technology. I, I'd prefer being able to drive the truck than having the truck drive me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I remember when you were in sure. our, our lot and you were um... – not really complaining, but you were saying that you weren't in your normal truck and you're in something newer and that you just wanted your old truck out of the shop so you could actually drive the truck again instead of it driving you. And yeah, you mean that, that because of like the the transmission being manual versus automatic? Yes, yes. And, you know, you, it's governed and you can't, you know, you've got too many limitations. And, you know, if, if the engine feels like you're pumping too much fuel into it, even though you need the fuel for this mountain coming up, it'll shut you down. I mean, you you can't drive the equipment like you used to in so many ways. But, yeah, I remember that time with you, Jason. That had an automatic in it. And, man, what a different animal that is, for sure. So, so I would think that if I had just hopped in a truck, I have very little experience, just a little bit in the motorhome, and ours was a manual. But I always thought in my mind that an automatic would be easier, but that doesn't sound like that that's the case. Uh, it's not for a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, for example, if you you got an automatic, you've got yourself a load behind you, and you see somebody coming, uh, you think, okay, you judge the distance as to whether you can pull out in front of them safely or not with an automatic you don't have the control, you know, like uh, with my truck, I could put it in fourth or fifth gear. I could take off and I could be out and gone in a very short period of time where this automatic, it like real slow. It's all about fuel efficiency here. And it just like a little grunt, a little grunt for the next gear. Uh, uh, okay. Uh. And so you have no control. You have to give yourself three or four times the distance uh, when people are approaching than what you would if you had a regular manual. That's interesting. So so when you're sitting at, like, let's say, down like Highway 2 in Lincoln, because there's usually trucks that run down that, and you're at a stoplight, and I'm in just like a regular vehicle, and I'm behind two trucks, and sometimes the truck will just take off like crazy, and the other one's just putzing along. That's probably the difference between an automatic and a manual right there. Right. Exactly. And possibly their load. You know, if, if they've got an empty trailer, of course, you can you can just put it in fourth or fifth gear and take off, you know. And but uh, if you're loaded down with 80,000 pounds, you need every gear and it takes a while to get going. So 
You met earlier, you briefly mentioned the scales. Can you explain to everybody, you know, what, what that means? And cause I think everyone sees like the stations off to the side of the road all across the interstate. And there's usually like a state trooper or state patrol car sitting there. But what, what does that mean? And what, what time did that take when you were going over the road? And is there times where you get stuck there because of certain issues? Yeah, they're all about uh, safety and and uh, regulations for whatever state you're in. And, you know, we're called the United States of America, but every state has their own rules and regulations, it seems. And uh, I remember back when I started, um, we had, we couldn't go over 73,280, 73,280 pounds until you got to Pennsylvania, and then you could go 80,000 pounds. So, you know, uh, every state was a little bit different, but now that everything is kind of pretty much uh, become united, I, I guess, uh, with uh, with their regulations, uh, eighty thousand pounds is pretty much good to go until you start getting off on uh, back highways and certain bridges and, and that have. Uh, have laws and rules against being on them. But all in all, 80,000 pounds uh, is gross weight for most trucks. And uh, they want your equipment in good shape. So the scales are there primarily to check your weight, check your equipment, and make sure the driver is qualified. Okay. You may not always be inspected with where all of those are checked, but you're always going to be uh, weighed to make sure that uh, your weight is distributed correctly. For example, you can't have more than 20,000 pounds on the steering. You can't have over 32,000 pounds per tandem. And you can't have over 80,000 per gross. So you have to learn how to distribute the weight equally. So you can't have, you know, uh, 40,000 pounds on the drives and, and uh, 23,000 on the on the trailer. It just won't fly. So how, how do you control that as a driver the weight distribution uh, well you're real careful on how it's loaded you i always paid attention to my heavy loads how it was loaded and i usually gave them uh, directions if uh, if they did it themselves um we always just waited and if you were heavy on one end or another uh, you can always adjust the weight from the tandems um we got sliding tandems on the trailer Okay. I don't know if you I don't know if you noticed but I didn't know that. No. I always slide my tandems up closer to the tractor on the trailer. Okay. You know my trailer tandems, I slide yep. them up closer to the tractor when I'm coming in there because it it shortens my turning radius. And okay. uh, and if you shorten it like that, it puts more weight on the back because the weight starts hanging more over the axle. Okay. The farther farther back the uh, back of the trailer goes over the axle. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep, I know exactly what you're saying. And, and so that's how you do it. And uh, some have uh, fifth wheel sliders where you can adjust the steering as well. The one thing that I always find interesting about the weight, like when we're just going to ship a load or somebody's shipping something to us, and I'll ask them about the weight, a lot of people, will just, and it's not the truck drivers, it's the places that are shipping it, they'll be like, oh, we don't know what it weighs. I'm like, well, how do you even... Like, doesn't the driver need to know that? <laughs> they have to put something on the bill, whether yeah. it's right or wrong. 
And uh, in most cases, how much stuff do you have that comes in there that is really, you know, close to that 45,000 pound limit? Yeah, not very. So it... Yeah. And so it really doesn't matter. Okay. How's a person supposed to learn all of this? Like who teaches new truck drivers how to distribute weight evenly? Well, you know, that's the, the whole thing. I learned it, you know, as I was driving with with my father. And uh, uh, nowadays, um, you can't just have your dad hop you in the truck, take you down the road. It's too federally controlled now. You pretty much, if you're going to drive a truck nowadays, um, you're going to pretty much have to uh, go to a school. Like uh, Southeast Community College. I believe they uh, offer training. I know there's uh, uh, trucking companies or trucking uh, schools in Omaha. So uh, they will treat, teach you all the regulations, all the rules concerning your hours on time, uh, the distances you can drive, and, uh, and uh, you know, just uh, the regulations. It's the only way you can learn it. And uh, Right. But it takes time to actually make it work to get out there in a piece of equipment and actually hit every possible scenario. So, yeah. So the Kaiser parking lot is notoriously difficult and we have a lot of drivers complain to us about it or just refuse to pull in altogether. Um, and you've never had issues with it. So what is your secret to navigating that space? Believe me, Kaiser is a cakewalk. <laughs> Finally, somebody said it. I, I've been to, I've been to places that just made me like, "Are you kidding me? There's no way." Let me tell you about one, Pennsylvania. This was in Pennsylvania too, and I've been to a lot of places, especially the big cities like uh, Philadelphia or uh, you know New York City or any of these which have old old. Uh, areas where where it was for uh, delivering, you know, market areas that are from uh, the 18, 1900s, you know, and they're just not made for the equipment that we bring in there. But uh, there was this one place here in Pennsylvania. I was empty. I was going in to pick up a load, and uh, I took off. I took off the road, and they told me to take the dirt road right beside the the bridge. And then uh, turn left under the bridge uh, by the creek. And so I, I pulled down there, and I looked at that creek, and I looked at where I had to turn underneath that bridge, and only half of my trailer was past the bridge, the embankment. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to make this. And I, I slid my tandems all the way back. I, I looked, and I said, I'm still not going to make it. And so I walked around uh, to the other side of the bridge and up to the company that uh, told me to come in like that. And I says, I don't know what the trick is getting in here, but there's no way I can make that turn because you, you know, you have to get right up against the Creek. And as I mentioned, you got 5,000, 6,000 pounds on that steering axle. You don't want to get too close to that Creek. Cause then you'll just drive off into well, it. Right. You, well, you'll just sink, yeah. you know, I mean, you'll just sink. And and they said, oh yeah, here we got we got a way of getting in there, and so this guy came in and he grabbed this old round rock, this round stone, and he dunked it in the creek, 
and he carried it over there to the corner of uh, where I would have hit the, the the bridge, you know, with the trailer. And what 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 he did, he put that stone right there to the side of uh, my trailer tire. He says, "Okay, just drive up real slow." And so I drove up real slow, and that tandem that that trailer would slide off of that rock to the right, a little farther away from, from the bridge. And then we'd do that about six or eight or 10 times by the time the trailer had moved enough where I could actually get under that bridge and, and continue on to that company. Because you're trying to make like a U-turn, basically, and it was too yeah, sharp yeah, of a turn. Yeah, I was making a U-turn okay. underneath that bridge to, to uh, their facility on the other side of the bridge. And so I could not make that turn. There was just absolutely no way. And uh, so they brought out that <laughs> rock. Yeah, no kidding. They brought out that rock, and uh, we just worked that trailer, you know. Well, that's what I need to do. I need to get a rock and wet it down, and then these yeah, guys yeah, can get dude. in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> do you really have a lot of trouble there? Oh, it's every, Al, it's every single day. I find For the longest time, we I was adamant about everybody has to pull in. Cause I don't like unloading in the street because all those cars buzz around there fast and I don't want somebody to get hurt or hit on accident because the forklift is hanging outside of where the trailer is on the street or something and a car comes by. So I was real adamant about, no, we're not unloading in the street. If you're not going to pull in, just take the load back. But it's gotten so bad here in the last three or four months, and I don't know why, but every single driver refu this refuses. And it's just an argument and a screaming match. And I just gave up, and so we just are pretty much unloading in the street now. But you're one of the only ones that you and um, there's a couple drivers from FCC that we see a lot, and they'll they're happy to pull in no problem. But all of the like the LTL companies, any of those drivers, they're pretty much absolutely not. And it's usually it's wide open. You you yourself could be there in a Crete truck in the other driveway, and they'll be hollering at me saying there's no way anybody can get in there and i just like look over at your truck and like well he did so <laughs> well you think the ltls would be able to get in there with no problem they're usually coming in there with with a day cab yeah and, i know uh, yeah they shouldn't have any problem i'll tell them that you From said a that. liability perspective are they are they like if they were to hit something in the kaiser lot is it on them is that why they're nervous about it well, of course Anytime you're driving that equipment and you bump something, uh, you know, it's your fault, period. Whether it's on your lot or whether it's on, on the street. I mean, if you're, that's why you got to be careful. I, if I have any questions, I'm out looking, you know, don't, don't be afraid to get out and look. But, uh, you know, I remember at one point you used to keep that one area clear of, of vehicles. You know, that really made a lot of difference, you know, especially for people who are having trouble. If you kept, you know, them two or three vehicles that are right in front of your driveway entrance, mm -hmm. if you could keep them away from being there, uh, most people would be able to get the majority in and then use that extra space. You know, you may not think it matters, but that extra four or five foot sometimes it makes a world of difference. Mm -hmm. Just like when, when you had to come out when it was snowing. Oh yeah, and there's a snow drift that, there yep. because you know it just they didn't scoop it out far enough, and uh, you know every inch counts on your lot. It's yep. true. It's not the easiest, 
but all in all, it's not that bad. Well, somebody said it, so <laughs> now everybody should be able to pull in. <laughs> so, Al, I learned about you recently that you also have a radio show. Can you tell us about that? Oh, I do. Yeah. What was it? Uh, I, how long have I been doing that? Uh, uh, man, 15 years, I guess, I've been doing that and uh, off and on. Uh, when I went back out on the road, I had to give it up for a while, but uh, they were glad to have me come back. But I, I do a little show at uh, KZUM 89.3 here in Lincoln. It's a Lincoln's best-kept secret. It's never meant to be, but it is. It's uh, it's uh, community radio at its finest. It's uh, um, consists of 100 volunteers, roughly, that keep, uh, keep the uh, radio airways alive. Uh, 24-7. Whoa. And uh, it's members of the community that donate their time, their music, and, you know, they come up with their own plan of uh, of uh, programming. So you can find anything from country to polka to big band, you name it, whatever you like, someone has that show for you. And uh, me... My show is a blues show, primarily a blues, blues show. Yeah, I play the blues, a little classic rock. I might throw in some rhythm and blues. I even toss in some Zydeco. I might even wow. throw a little comedy in there occasionally. You never know. But uh, but it's primarily a blues show. And, and you're uh, the DJ. I am. I am. I, I'm on from uh, 3.05 until 6 o'clock every Wednesday afternoon. Right after World News, I come on, and uh, you know, I uh, I just have fun. I like to play uh, all kinds of blues, uh, and uh, and I do live interviews. And but primarily, I've come to the conclusion: the less of me, the better the show. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that's true, but I will certainly be tuning in. <laughs> so I don't talk any more than I have to. I may say who's playing, but from 3.30 to 4, usually I, I have a live interview with an, with an artist, and, you know, I, I have some of the best in the blues uh, on my show. You know, uh, I'm very uh, lucky to have the format that I've got and to be recognized with so many premium uh, labels and promoters who constantly call and say, hey, we've got a new release, we've got someone coming into your area, and we get on your show. And, you know, it's just, I just love that, you know? And, uh, and, uh, so that's what I do. It's, so people uh, are, people are coming into the studio. That's what you mean by live interview? Yeah. Well, okay. uh, and otherwise uh, we're doing a phone live okay. on the phone. Okay. And with the whole COVID thing, I've had live interview, I've had whole bands up there, uh, just tearing it up. But, uh, you know, with the COVID thing, we're just now getting an okay to bring one member in. We can bring one member of the band so, you know, the main individual can come into the studio. And uh, But I think most of them want to wait till the band can come in and, and uh, do a live feature. But uh, that's what I do every Wednesday. And uh, it may not be for everybody, but uh, it is fun. It is fun. What is it about blues music that draws you? 
I don't know. You know, I've uh, throughout my lifetime, I've uh, I've listened to everything from uh, you know bluegrass to alternative to country to rock and roll to you know you name it. I've always been into music, and uh, I've always been into not top forty. You know, I don't I don't really care what is on the radio top forty. You hear the same six songs, you know, all day long, basically. And, you know, I'm not into that at all. I like to hear artists where I like to play stuff where the phone lights up and says, man, who was that? You know, I love to introduce people to new music, new artists. And I do a lot of that. So I could say if you tune into my my radio show, uh, 98% of it you've probably never heard of. But uh, you'll I love that. that. You, I don't know what kind of music you like. What kind of music do you like? I'm an omnivore. I like a little bit of everything. The more variety, the better. Wonderful. Just like me. Yes. Yep. So, Al, what advice would you have for someone considering entering the trucking industry? Well, you know, I would say that it is a good living. Uh, uh, you can make a good living at it, but you have to be dedicated and you have to totally understand what you're getting into. If you're going over the road, that's exactly what it means. You're you're over the road. You're going to be gone for a long time. And, uh, you know, you, you're just not going to learn everything overnight. In fact, I still, uh, you know, learn stuff uh, as I'm, I'm out there today. So, uh, you know, all I can say is, you know, if you don't have, if you're a farm boy, you've grown up driving equipment, hauling grain, you know, you might have a better opportunity to get hired on somewhere. But in most cases now, you know, you're going to need to uh, plan on schooling. And uh, a lot of schools have good reputable companies where they're pretty much guaranteeing positions for drivers that pass. So that would be the first step they would have to go into. But, you know, you have to understand that. <clears throat> Uh, you you are a customer to your employer as well. You know, you don't make the rules. Sometimes uh, things change on me with absolutely no notice, and that'll happen to you over the road 10 times as much. So it's not easy, and uh, but it's a good living. It's an honest living. And, uh, you know, if you can, uh, if you're a single man and you want to go out and see the country for a couple of years, Man, I would say get on board. But, uh, you know, if you're a family man and you've done some an office job for the last 25 years, I don't know if you could adapt. Maybe you could. But uh, I would say to anyone wanting to get into the trucking company to look into it deeply, see what the possibilities are, and, uh, you know, decide if this is going to work for you before you commit to uh going into that profession. So when it comes time for you to retire, and we hope it's not soon, obviously, because you're one of our favorites, um, but would you come work for Kayser and help drivers pull into our lot, or would you help Jace revive his racing career and drive him all over the country? You know, I don't know about uh, Jace. I mean, uh, he doesn't sound like he wants to get into the uh, the uh, racing right away, but yeah, I would be up for that. That's a seasonal job, dry, dry roads. I could handle that. And, 
as far as uh, as far as uh, helping drivers get back in, I don't know. You know, uh, Jason and I had that uh, conversation. Now, we have an agreement. If if time comes and he needs some someone to help get someone in, I would gladly be there. I've got I'm him on. Only, I've got him on speed dial. I'm only I'm only a few blocks away from where you guys are, so it wouldn't take me long to get there. But uh, yeah, it would be fine, you know. And uh, but Jace, if you ever needed someone to pull your equipment around, I think I could probably do that. Yeah, and you, like you say, it is seasonal, so. Right, you'd be the first one I'd call. You could certainly call me, and. Uh, I'll make I'll make sure it's a manual. <laughs> well, well, I'm probably going to be using a pickup, right? No, when we go racing, it's a full blown motorhome, um, oh. and then a trailer. I mean, it's. It ends up being about 53 foot long, but it's about half and half, right? The motorhome is about half and the trailer's the other half, so. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Be, uh, that'd be like me uh, driving from my living room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I could live with that. And then usually in the, on the, like, bigger rate, like NASCAR, let's say, obviously that's not what I would be doing, but usually those truck drivers like they're driving around their wives are usually with them and then they end up like doing cooking and doing cookouts at the racetrack and stuff like that yeah yeah all you gotta do is uh you got my number and uh, we can sure toss anything around that you want me to be a part and of. then we'll set up we'll set up some like a little awning and some speakers and you can do your radio show right from the racetrack oh, yeah you bet. yeah yeah we'll call in a couple of those uh uh, pit crew and, uh, you know, say, uh, uh, take requests. How about that? There you go. All right. So, well, I don't, do you have any more questions, Chloe? No, I just, I want to, Al to know that I'm looking forward to being his coworker here at Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I happen to have a Kaiser t-shirt every once in a while. I wear it when I come in there. And, oh, there uh, you go. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like part of the family. So. Well, Jace is planting those seeds early. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing you again now that you're all right. So well, hopefully we see you soon, and um, it's warming up, so we won't have to worry about being freezing cold when we're moving the stuff around. So thank you for being on today. Appreciate it. This was fun. This has been the funnest one so far this year. Well, thank you. Uh, I hope uh, everything went as planned for you, and uh, it's worth posting on uh, your Hazercast. Absolutely. All right, thanks again. Thank you, Al. All right, so that was Al Lundy. Really enjoy talking to him, as you can tell. Um, really happy that he came on. Looking forward to seeing him again. He hasn't been driving for a while. He's been off work with with some issues. Um, so I think he's getting pretty much fully healthy, and he should be back here in the next few weeks. So looking forward to that, because um, I don't think we've had any driver that's been happy about pulling into our lot since he has been out so i guess his fellow creek carrier um guy which i don't even know his name that guy's really quiet he also will back in without without any problem at all um but otherwise it's just it's just challenging and i think chloe saw that a little bit when she was there and i don't know recently everybody's just in a bad mood but it's just like it's like nasty arguments um and it just when I hear it happening outside my office to where, like, they're being really rude and snotty to the front desk, Abby C. and Abby N., my heart rate just, like, immediately goes up. And I'm ready mm -hmm. to, like, as my grandpa would say, 
fill the room with uppercuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good line. I'm going to use that. But it's just, I can only yell about it so much. And then it just, it, after a while, it's like, I, it just takes it out of you, you know? Because right. you just feel like they're being difficult to just be difficult, you know? So know. what's the solution? What are you going to do? We're just unloading people on the street for right now. It, Isn't that super dangerous? Yeah, but when me and Chauncey are on the forklift, I think we can pay close enough attention and, and put ourselves in the right positions that it's not the end of the world. When it's difficult stuff to unload, we obviously wouldn't do that on the street, but it's just becoming to the point where if it's just one pallet, it's easier just to grab it and move on with our lives, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. We need Al to come back. Mm -hmm. We, um, switching gears a little bit, we had a question from social media. It came via Facebook um, from Rick Endicott II. And it's kind of a multi-part question about our ovens. So buckle up, because here we go. Um, is your oven set at a certain temp, like, say, 420 degrees? And do some parts take a little longer to preheat than others due to size and thickness? Some of my small parts I bake for about an hour to cook off any contaminants, but these bigger and thicker parts seem like they might take a little longer to heat up. Yeah, so we set our ovens at 400 degrees because that's what we normally cure powder at. Our dry-off, maybe we'll kick it up to 410 um, just to get it dried at a little higher temperature. So that's where our ovens run for temperature-wise. Um, and yes, parts that are thicker... Um, Bigger in general, but just like thicker mainly, uh, those do take longer to heat up because there's just more there's more mass there to heat up essentially. So um, usually that's a problem with curing. Um, a lot of the time you can get it to be dry without having to like leave the part in there forever because it it eventually will just start boiling the water off, and the part doesn't necessarily have to be at a temperature per se, but to cure it. Um, definitely the part's got to be up to temperature and then that, that becomes difficult with really thick things. And so you have like, there's certain parts that we, that we cure for like 90 minutes minimum. And that's a long time. That's a long time to tie the oven up, but you can't be sending out parts that aren't cured. So I didn't realize it could take that long. Yeah, definitely. And that's because we're just like a, a gas fired convection oven. So you're just convective heating is what you're. Um, relying on just like an oven in your house. Um, I've been looking into and trying to research um, some IR uh, ovens or IR boosters. And I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast and I actually was saying some things that weren't true because I didn't know what I was talking about. But essentially, uh, you, IR is like infrared, so you're using radiation to try to get more heat into that part quicker to try to help cure the powder. Um, and that seems to be like an answer for really thick things. Um, we just, we haven't gone that yet, but I'm, I'm interested in trying it because if you could bring the cure time of something really heavy from 90 minutes back down into like 40 minutes or something, man, that's huge. Um, and in uh, infrared heating can help that. So I don't know enough about it to, go into too much detail but would it require you to modify your current oven or would you install a different one 
I think there, I think there's options both ways. Um, I know that you definitely can just do a modification, but I don't, that might be cumbersome. Um, and then I know that you can get ovens that are fully IR, but then it's kind of like, is that going to be okay? Like, do we want to have an oven that's fully IR or will we like be restricted on what we can even do in that? Like there may be some benefits from it, but then there may be a lot of drawbacks too. So that makes sense. So Rick had asked that question a couple weeks ago, so I just answered him on Facebook. Hopefully that's helpful. All right. Well, I don't know if I have anything else for today. This is the end of this season, do you realize? Yeah, for the most part. Maybe we'll pick up some random ones, but a while back I told Chloe that I thought towards the end of March we should probably wrap it up for a while because usually when, based on like last year, it seemed like when it got warm out that Everybody was wanting to do something on Saturday afternoons, which I don't blame them. Yeah. So we'll think of a, a bunch of people for probably next fall, and maybe we'll do some random special ones throughout the summer, but probably be few and far between. Enjoy your summer, everybody, and reach out if you want to be featured on KaiserCast. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Broke. Anything leaking? Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. When you stay late tonight, we need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated, but if we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything? Mm-hmm.